Daniel Mroz is now the most uh, featured person on this martial arts studies podcast. We we did an interview a while back, and then um, I podcast one of his presentations at one of our conferences. And today we're going to talk about um, things differently, aren't we, Daniel? <laughs> nice to see you again. How are you doing? I'm all right. It's good to see you. <laughs> <laughs> so last time, last time we talked, um, the recording went wrong. We dropped, we lost the internet connection. So we talked for half an hour and the internet connection fell out. And then I didn't have the editing skills and I lost the recording and everything. This time we've just talked for, I think, maybe 25 minutes and you thought that we were recording. But so, <laughs> so this time it's like every time we have a false start of some kind. Um, but you, the thing that precipitated this discussion um, today was your article on Tao Lu in the journal Martial Arts Studies, which I, which I hope to, to get to. I hope that we can solve the riddle of Tao Lu once and for all. Um, but you wanted to talk about some new thought experiments and new approaches to, to combining different, different problems and, and coming up with some new hypotheses, right? Would that be a fair? Yeah representation so for sure um i i guess i'm also trying to represent to myself how i do thinking to speak yep. really plainly and also that you know in the humanities i think we are really tolerant of things that are considered would be considered speculative in other disciplines yeah and i just had a very long conversation online with a friend of mine at the other university here in town who's a cognitive science professor and some of the the parameters that he feels are suitable and the parameters that i feel are suitable for having a reasonable conversation really quite different so uh yeah i was thinking about how we make meaning and uh i there's a uh, celebrated maybe slightly 70s uh person uh, maybe a logician you know in the private sector uh, named Edward de Bono. And I mm. confess I've read a lot of Edward de Bono's books, but I don't know much about him. The books are very, very lean and they're kind of just try this. There's very um, almost schematic exercises in thinking. And one of his descriptions uh, in the book with the whimsical title of Five Thinking Hats is um, how do we define creativity? And the way he defines it is saying, well, it's our ability to relate uh, laterally across asymmetrical sets. And, you know, this is like a little bit technocratic and, mm. you know, makes people who don't know about math nervous because it must be true, it's math. But there's a, uh, I, I did a little, I made a PDF to uh, <laughs> try and demonstrate what so, he means by this. Okay. So I'm going to I don't know if the screen shares is you it on. You should be able to share. No, you should. You can share the screen. Oh, I mean, should we I have turn to talk it through it because yeah. some people will watch this on YouTube and other people will listen to it on their on their devices. Oh, oh. so you know, then maybe. Yeah. Yeah, maybe I'll, I'll 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 do the visual quickly afterwards. So, the this notion of relating asymmetrical sets. I feel like the degree of asymmetry in the humanities, like the degree that we're willing to tolerate, is perhaps the most, the, the, the largest degree. And as we move across the disciplines, the degree of asymmetry 
uh, becomes a liability to the kinds of knowledge claims. And so we're trying to actually remove that uh, asymmetry as we get closer and closer to something that we might think of as, as more empirical. Again, I could be mistaken. And there's a theater artist who uh, is often quoted um, named Robert Wilson. And he described this ability uh, to generate meaning through coordinating between asymmetrical sets in the following way. He said, well, if I take a Baroque candelabra and I put it on a Baroque table, the whole thing kind of vanishes into a general aesthetic of the Baroque. But if I take a Baroque candelabra and I put it on a rock in the middle of the ocean, then we can see it in his words as it is. Okay. And so this pattern switching, if you will, or ability to coordinate across patterns, I feel is very, very inspiring and useful. And I can, you know, using examples like the Robert Wilson or uh, the, the visual thing that uh, we're not going to do because this is a podcast, but uh, using simple metaphorical examples, I can indicate to collaborators and, and to students that the kind of nature of speculative thinking that yields creativity. And mm -hmm. uh, the other thing I was thinking about, so we've got asymmetrical sets. The other side is um, our colleague D.S. Ferrer's uh, great idea where he came up with these notions of false connection. And he was talking about it in terms of martial arts, in terms of Singapore society. Mm -hmm. But he, I think he was contrasting people who were doing uh, Tao Lu and demonstrating an awful lot of martial prowess. Mm -hmm. And then when he uh, you know, fought with them, they did not demonstrate very much martial prowess. <laughs> and he felt there was a, uh, a disconnect between what was being the value being given to these presentations and to people's titles as I am a martial arts teacher and the actual ability that that referred to. So there was a, he felt there was a false connection there. So if we think we've got sets that are asymmetrical and we're making connections and that's creativity. And then the other side is we've got sets and we're making connections and they're actually a little bit delusional or seen certain ways, they are, they are productive of further questions. Mm -hmm. Like in Doug's case, you know, what are why are people doing these martial arts? Because they certainly aren't using them to fight. Yeah, and yeah, so I started to generate a whole pile of uh, possible topics using this. Uh, you know, is it you know a creative connection or is it a false connection? Or you know, is there what's the distinction between? Or if we look at something as a creative connection, or we look at it as a false connection. How does that work? And the first one that occurred to me is uh, due to the, you know, one's preoccupation around figuring out the relationship between Chinese cultural history and Chinese military history with respect to the artifacts that we now have called Chinese martial arts. Yeah. And uh, the, the one of the martial arts that I practice the uh, Taiji trend, which, you know, comes from uh, a whole unknown, but kind of known history, and seems to get synthesized in Beijing in the uh, 1850s. And 
who is doing it. And it's not entirely clear who's doing it, but there's this wonderful French scholar and practitioner named uh, uh, José Carmona, and he may pronounce it Spanish, which would be José Carmona, but uh, I'm not sure. And uh, he's written a beautiful book in French, uh, La Transmission du Taiji Chuan. Mm -hmm. And he's a very, very capable speaker and reader of Chinese, including older Chinese. So he describes how, from what records are available, sometimes in secondary sources, like somebody cited something, mm -hmm. uh, the bulk of what became Taiji Chuan was developed by a bunch of Manchurian fusiliers who were called the Shenji Ying, which is the, the divine mechanism, the gun. And they had hired, and this is where it gets a little mysterious for me, they hired a someone who is a much lower social standing to be the martial arts tutor or fighting tutor for their little group. Yeah. So this is like in their private lives. Yeah. And so, but private, perhaps different con con conceptions of privacy and what's professional, what's private. But the uh, the outcome of this is we see that really really tough people. You know who you know, had guns and you know, they were Manchurian. They wrestled. They shot arrows. They could ride horses. Sometimes they even had bullets. And uh, these guys uh, were hiring someone to come in and be their coach. So they're already tough. And so the false connection, I think, uh, is that we think of martial arts now in our kind of the brands of martial arts that exist are sources of toughness and in you know media like every film there's the training montage you know oh, yes. a person who goes from weak to strong um there's you know things that apparently aren't i don't someone who knows about judo should say this but like presenting kano as being uh, the founder of judo is like oh he was a weak young man and apparently like maybe he wasn't but you know there's this this narrative that the martial art is actually going to change you into a tough person or a resilient person whereas mm -hmm. i think the history a more productive way of looking at it is like these martial arts are outgrowths of the serious leisure of people who are already tough. Yeah. And what I do like about this is it kind of works across the board because if we look at the uh, the the Chole Foot um, Futsan uh, Hong Sing school that I talk about in the in the article uh, that in in martial arts studies that used a lot of Ben Jenkins research on that period. So those people, they're already very tough. Mm. And then they do this. Mm -hmm. And so maybe it's an expression of leisure. Maybe it's a skill refinement as uh, tough people who are learning to fight. And we have, it, so it, it seems to work in a lot of places. It seems to work in Beijing where we're talking about you know, this Manchurian elite squad of people. There were members of the Manchurian nobility in it. So, you know, we're looking at, you know, the social strata that, mm. you know, almost no law or social distances that almost no longer exist in uh, our parts of the world at least yeah so so there's a kind of this reversal i think is is really helpful and there's an american school of sociology i don't know much about it but it, it i've been reading it seems very nourishing is uh, this idea of serious leisure that people do things with an incredible intensity mm. and they are not necessarily going to produce a kind of jovial or immediately gratifying um, outcome, but it's not the people's profession, but it's intermingled with the profession. 
or yeah. Yeah. exists to fund it. It reminds me of, um, so we, you know, our mutual friend, Graham Barlow, right? So Graham talked like back in, back in the olden days when we were just, we were just nobodies and we weren't famous because there was no real, <laughs> there was no internet like this for nobodies to become famous for no particular reason. Um, and he, we, he taught me Tai Chi and Charlie Foot and, um, and, and we would go through applications, the applications of different moves from the, from the Tai Chi form. And we would sometimes laugh going like, yeah, it, w- it would work, but you'd have to be so good already to make these applications like work in our real situation. And that was kind of the line that we sort of spontaneously arrived at was like, yeah, it works, but it's so preposterously difficult to do that you'd already have to be that person who was so incredibly brilliant at fighting that this was nothing, this was extra. This was, you know, you're mm-hmm. fighting someone who's already easy to beat anyway. I mean, it really mm-hmm. it really chimes with that. But I guess the other thing that you might be more interested in taking up is, is um, it, I'm thinking when you're talking about a few things around connection and false connection, um, and I remember, you know, we go back to um, Sigmund Freud, and this is kind of the origin of, of what um, D.S. Farah is talking about. And one of the first criticisms of one of the first criticisms of Freud was made by his, his colleague Fleiss, uh, who argued that psychoanalysis was basically just wit gone wild over ingenious analogizing, lacking the neck. I think this is a quote, actually, this is a direct quote, probably in German first, but that psychoanalysis is just wit gone wild, over ingenious analogizing, lacking the necessary discrimination. And that like, how do you, how does psychoanalysis justify the connections that it makes? And this is a problem that kind of infects the whole of the arts and humanities really. How do you, how do you interpret this this way? How do we, in, what's the, the strength of the connections that we're making, false connections or creative connections, or like how can we justify our interpretation of Tao Lu? How can we justify our interpretation of the applications of the forms? You know, how, how do we interpret anything? Is there any strong guarantor of, of our interpretation? Or have you thrown that whole thing out and you just go with creative connections? Um, I think, no, I, I so many thoughts at once i'm really happy to be wrong (laughs) um too uh you know because it's 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 bound to happen so better get used to it the second thing i think i'm not the creative part is that i don't really imagine that one this is these are not problems to solve in the sense that you know we're going to nail it down a diamond always cuts a piece of glass no matter what we call the diamond or the piece of glass i don't think we're engaged in that kind of problem and then the the other part is a sense that we do have a lot of information and we shouldn't pretend we don't so the this is a little bit of a personal interest that the written material on Chinese religion in the last 30 or 40, maybe even 50 years has just, it's just blossomed. It's extraordinary. Mm. And some thought of context for understanding all the other, other or the intermingled 
cultural manifestations. So it allows us to understand how a certain body of literature was generated, what kind of influences are determining what's being painted, how theater is produced and uh, interpreted, and of course, um, martial arts. So we really have this great treasure trove and it would be responsible to look at it. So this is me being a little bit more creativity, just do a proper literature review, damn it. Mm. Like that is a very uh, important thing to do. And you know, like when you look at military documents, uh, this famous thing, everyone's always like, oh, Gigi Guang invented Taiji, you know? Um, and uh, you know, you, I have his book upstairs. It's just lists. <laughs> so whether or not, you know, we, the lists never reveal the, the the culture surrounding them. You know, if I, you and I play cards, third party has no idea what the rules are. They can examine the cards. They're never going to find the rules. The rules are in the, the situation that envelops it. So my more scholarly uh, point of view would be that, you know, how much information we actually have. Oh, wow, look or you know, we don't have information, but in many cases we really do. And we, it's incredibly productive to, mm -hmm. to look into it. And then depending on you know, how skeptical or what lens you're using, then you have your, the limits of your creativity and you know, what's speculative and what is you know, really probably quite transitive. And for you, this isn't just like interpretive creativity, is it? This is a kind of, there's always a, a lived and trained and practiced dimension to it. So I'm thinking back to your article, which you, I know you worked on it obsessively through the, the summer of 2020 and, and, and we, we published it in, in late 2020. And, um, and it's, it was about the way you kind of obsessively lived the question of Taolu, the, the Chinese uh, martial arts sets, and your relationship with swords, and, it kind, and, and your relationship with space, and, and, and your concept of negative space. And this was, a, this was a process that was creative, and you're forming connections, but it wasn't simply kind of uh, logocentric. It wasn't simply words, was it? I mean, it was about living living new connections to, to produce a new understanding that that goes beyond words right i think the great challenge of doing anything that you know i personally will find interesting uh in written form is making that switch how do you express something or at least infer that it there's an experience that without traveling too far from that experience. And so that was a major preoccupation of that writing was sort of, yeah, in a way, here's an awful lot of history and knowledge that we have. And then here are personal experiences and then other people's accounts that kind of match those personal experiences. And so bringing all that together is something that is very, uh, that's the obsessive quality. Like, how do you how do you actually express that so that people can come away with a clearer idea, not only of your experience but of the, the whole context in which you're having that experience? And uh, something that as this is, is uh, one of my funny thought experiments that I prepared for you today, but it it really 
relates to what you just, uh, you just asked about. And I, I hope I can do this justice because it's a little bit disciplinary. It's a little bit into theater and dance. But if we look at the, um, the, the, the things that I'm talking about in, in the article in terms of how we, uh, you know, the reversals, uh, first we you know, deal with trying to tame our body and put it into certain positions. And then we become aware of the, the feelings of the body in those positions. And then we project out in order to be able to you know, manifest our intentions and our receptivity into the space around us. And if we look at the preoccupations of uh, dance and theater training in the mid mid century, early century, all the way up to now, it goes through those phases. It's just marvelous. So, like something that is very, very preoccupied with introspection and um, interoception would be the method acting, which apparently appears in New York. All these traumatized people could come over from Europe after the war. Psychoanalysis that you just mentioned is. Everyone is in psychoanalysis. It is the, I mean, everyone, I'm exaggerating, but yeah. there's an enormous number of people who are involved in the performing arts who are also in psychoanalysis and the methods start to blend. So this pretend it's real acting that is developed in the, in basically in New York and a little bit in California uh, in mid-century is an entirely inward looking thing around the psychology of oneself and the character and so that becomes the measure of the theater of that time in dance we see a similar kind of archetypal thing if you look at the this is a little earlier but if you look at martha graham there are all of these archetypal figures so there there is a kind of a story is being told and you even go back to something like Str stravinsky's a rite of spring but uh there's a, a real preoccupation with figures and the psychological or you know pulsional recognizability of these figures and as we get into the 60s and 70s uh we move from like you know jing the body we move to uh something more like chi to energy where people are like there's a whole school of thought in the arts that we're still recovering from that the baby boomers kind of brought with them that i would jokingly refer to as free or id the art will follow you know you don't need technique you just this kind of pulsional um, thing. It's a play on George Clinton's yeah. very famous song. And um, so there, there's a, the introspection continues, but it's not a kind of character and psychological introspection. It's a bit less archetypal. It's moving towards something that we would recognize from, you know, Qigong and various kinds of alternative therapies of being aware of you know, energies in the body and the lines of energy and flow. And so it's a little bit more depersonalized and more primal. And then in the 80s and 90s, you start to have things that emerge into uh, a more spatialized kind of expression. And here I'm really probably shrinking the audience of people who know what I'm referring to, but there are a very, the most famous sort of American uh, actor training technique to emerge from that period is this thing called viewpoints, which is sort of a grammar of space. It was developed in contemporary dance and then adopted into theater. And it is very much about creating a kind of extroversion and spatial sense. So I was really quite delighted that this um, sort of Jing Chi Shun uh, progression moves is it was sort of expressed in the you know the art forms that, that i uh that i'm looking at all the time and that i you know 
work in professionally in their history. And of course, I may be doing a force mapping. You know, I may be comparing two patterns and, and you know, discovering them. But it's a very pleasant uh, realization. And uh, the, I'll close with this, uh, the way this is expressed in the, uh, the Himalayan uh, Buddhist tradition that has a lot of inter interaction with, with China, although it was more always trying to politically align itself with India, um, is there's the, you know, the very old school of Tibetan Buddhism. There are nine levels of achievement and types of training. And the number seven is you're basically visualizing yourself as an archetypal figure or a deity, and you're trying to transform your life accordingly. So you don't behave like you would behave. You behave like a special figure would behave. And you see everyone around you as part of that figure's retinue, even if they're doing horrible things to you. It doesn't matter because, oh no, I've transformed them. So this is Tantra. And then the next layer to that is you kind of make that figure into a transparent, basically humanoid, but that's it, uh, kind of uh, visualization. And within that, there are these energy centers and lines, and you're moving energy from one along a line towards a circle, etc. Very, very similar to Qigong. And then the last phase uh, is this projecting out into space, like experiencing oneself as spatialized. This is like Maha Yoga, uh, Anu Yoga, Ati Yoga. And uh, again, it follows this, uh, this progression. So I, you know, perhaps I'm just seeing patterns everywhere, which, you know, is our is our risk when we're uh, coordinating the way I'm suggesting. But at the same time, right now, I feel it is quite fruitful. There you have it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, I mean, this is a, this is quite a, a, a meta, a meta perspective on these, on these, these temporal and spatial connections. I mean, um, so what, how does, what does it change? I mean, into, let's say for a, a listener of this or a reader of martial arts studies or a practicing martial artist who, who's, I mean, what, who, who's interested in Tao Luce, I mean, what, what might this, does, does it change anything or does it give you something to hang on to or something to aim for maybe? Does it give you direction um, conceptually or I mean, what does, it, what does it do? One of the many things that I think are worth looking at would be that we can suffer from a kind of infinite internalization. And this is, in, say, if you play Taiji and you have your Taiji Taolu, and you know you get the structure and positions down and it becomes something that is easily accessible in memory, there might be a tendency to go into the phenomenology and never come out of it. And we see that a lot in, again, I hesitate to sound too critical, but sort of baby boomer expressions of Taiji Chuan, especially um, in New York City at the uh, same period that uh, I'm talking about with the performing arts, where there's a kind of modeling of senile posture, there's an infinite relaxation, infinite introversion, um, any kind of proactive uh, activity and push hands is deemed as well that's aggression you don't want to do that and so there's a that could just like that doesn't go anywhere you know past a certain point uh one doesn't necessarily become 
skilled at combat sports, one doesn't have more to experience in one's talu mm. if you keep on going inward. And you can start to produce an awful lot of strange fantasy. So to project outward and to reverse the fine-grained attention to the inside of you to what what am I able to sense about my environment mm. while doing this activity? And how is that activity nourishing my ability to see what's actually there in my environment? Mm. I think that's what is useful. Now, I realize it doesn't sound extremely concrete, but uh, the more we get into like my main, uh, as an adult, experience of, uh, I hesitate to say combat sports, but to mm. say play fighting, is uh, is with uh, is with swords. And of course, there's very few people in my area who actually know how to play Chinese swords. So I'm the guy with the Chinese sword, and I have friends who are in this um, American Dog Brothers group, and uh, we get together. And there's people also who are recreating historical martial arts from. Uh, from Europe, and so there's a kind of a mix of us who are who are playing, and I feel that this this spatial sense is immediately there, that you know, knowledge of range and you know minute details um, that are not simply felt within the self. In fact, as one relaxes and plays more and more and more, you can see yourself from outside and make adjustments to your position as though you're seeing it perhaps in profile, perhaps from above. But this is an extraordinary thing because you have a larger sense of the event you're in. Mm. And we're not actually modeling this kind of infinite regress and, and self-involvement. That in fact, like the writing process that you were articulating earlier, this logocentric thing uh, can really produce like the, the my great concerned all summer writing that article is I sat right here where you're seeing me right now and you know could only go out minimally and you know you, you spend four hours writing your body is substantially different mm. and your attention is substantially different I mean in what way is 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 what you're saying now different from a, a kind of a, a commonplace understanding of something like so if we do some standing qigong and, and you're standing in posture and you're and you're you know, breathing and relaxing. And it's funny as I say this, because for a long time, I was doing exactly the first stage of what you're talking about, you know, so, so, you know, doing Qigong uh, on and off, but, you know, for protracted periods of time over several years, many years. And the commonplace understanding is that, unlike certain forms of meditation, you should really be attuning your senses to what's going on in the environment. But I realized that I was spending a lot of time thinking about what was going on entirely within me, my posture, am I relaxed? Am, how's the stance? Where, where would it, you know, every, everything inside, can I feel any chi? <laughs> you know, all of these, all of these things. But what you're talking about is something that I'd kind of forgotten for a long time about Qigong practice, which is your awareness shouldn't be anywhere in particular, but it should be everywhere. It should be a, the, 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 the sounds and smells and senses and the everything and and of the environment. Um, I mean, that's written in lots of places. You, you know it, that that difference between a form of meditation and a, and and part of the purpose of 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 standing qigong is is that. Are you saying something different? Is it something um, 
do people get stuck where I was stuck for a long time and thinking only about my breath, my dantian, my my spine? You know, I mean, what's the difference? This was something that I, I went out for a walk last night. It was really snowy, and uh, I thought, oh, I'm going to talk to Paul tomorrow morning. I, you know, I just want to have a little quiet moment to think about what I might tell him, and. I was very stricken as I got to the end of the street where like everything I thought of, I thought was so interesting and clever and it's just so obvious. And so indeed, <laughs> um, as you say, uh, I do feel that some of the, the experiences of being able to have a field experience of the space you're in rather than an extremely local experience of your body or yourself, I think that is an unusual thing and probably very locally tactically useful if you play combat sports and artistically extremely useful if you're, for instance, a director or choreographer and you're responsible for coordinating a vast number of small variables in a single space, you can perceive the space as a single unit. Um, you also have a, a problem-solving skill will increase, you know, take the problem into your own body, process it, feel it mm -hmm. in the space, come back and suggest to someone else, why don't you try it like this? Yeah. So that's also perhaps a teaching advantage. Um, but I don't really think I'm, you know, it's uh, someone can tell you something again and again for many years and you think, oh yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, and then yeah. you actually have the experience of it. You're like, oh my God, this is like, I found the holy teacup. And of yeah, course, yeah, yeah. like, yeah, you know, it's, 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 it's very straightforward. But the, um, but we do have a tendency to want to, to return to this logocentric idea that we, we want to nail something down, we want to mm -hmm. solve things, we want to, you know, and our, the, we don't, really want to talk about it too much because it depresses the crap out of me but the neoliberalization of education into like everything should be a business and so yes. we have standardization and we've standardized experience in a kind of multiple choice way yeah. so we come to think of oh knowledge is seven bullet points yeah. you know and this is a very detrimental to everything in our lives obviously but it means that you know, there's there's more going on than just seven bullet points, but we want seven bullet points. And so if your experience of standing, for instance, produces seven bullet points, perhaps there should be a little bit of self-reflection about what that standing could be. Hmm. Oh, my phone's ringing. I, th I think it's just, I might ignore that, unless that's a, a bell ringing in my head. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, you know like this it's just a, you know this we the last conversation at the end you were talking about um you quoted bruce lee about his daily reduction yeah and i was you know and i just part of you know part of me is like oh no no it's like don't do that <laughs> because you're actually you know you're turning things into the you know the or the a misunderstood daily reduction maybe, down to, down is, to one point. yeah <laughs> yeah and you can't get experience into one bullet point. It's just not yeah. very. Feasible. I mean, there's, there's several things now in, in, in the mix. I mean, one of the things um, that you're talking about 
it, it really rings a bell. So after, after many years of, of, of religiously going to Tai Chi lessons and, and, and training and doing extra, extra push hand sessions with people and doing Tai Chi Gong at every opportunity, like, you know, a gap in between meetings, I'd be, I've got 20 minutes, I can, and, 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 and kind of totally confounded and bemused and befuddled by Tai Chi and, and being humiliated every, every week. And then one day you realize, oh, it's always the same lesson. It's always the same. Like the answer is always the same thing. And it's like, oh, I just need to. And, and one, day, one day you can't do it and you know the words and next day you just can do it. And it's like something happens like those words like seep into your technical ability and you, and you and now you find yourself that you're saying these you know just relax your shoulders to just re just do this and relax and move like this and can you feel that there and and boom and look the person's on the floor and I'm standing up and and that's the end it's it's amazing isn't it the way that like it's always it's always the same lesson it's not a bullet point it's, it's it's you could put it in a bullet point it might be seven bullet points um but it just it is astonishing that it, it's it's and by the time you've done Tai Chi for 10 years or so, it's like you're saying to people, oh, it's incredibly simple. <laughs> it only takes you 10 years to like relearn this, this innate thing that you would otherwise have, would otherwise have been squashed out of your uh, conscious and unconscious abilities. I think some of the, also these, this is to get back to the, um, waving a pocket knife at you the um getting back to the uh the idea of serious leisure as being a kind of very profession specific entertainment and a skill refinement thing if you know imagine we are very like this playing with swords recently has really brought this to the fore we have the best equipment in the history of humanity like you know you can really really fence with a heavy metal sword and your hands will be safe and you know like if, sure you can get dinged up but you can wear wonderful these gambesons the sort of historical martial arts gear it's incredible the the replica gem that are being made and if you go back to where you know there was no orthopedic surgery there were no antibiotics and uh you know protective gear for your hands was like yeah i've got two tea towels you know <laughs> so the uh this is a very, very different uh, yes. situation. So it's going to produce exercises that if you already scuffle because you're, it's your job or it's your fate because of your social standing, then you can extrapolate the skill that yeah. something quite gentrified and roll in, in uh, Tai Chi push hands or something. You can extrapolate that if you just do the forehand roll and you don't have the background yeah. of some kind of what, you know, we don't know what is the degree of friction you're experiencing, but you don't have that. Then there's the side of our modern mind, which is a little too functionalist uh, is like, Oh, that's kind of useless. Throw it out. And then, but the, I suppose my experience has been to like not having much, you know, fighting in my upper middle class life um, until electing to do combat sports or martial arts with friends. Um, what do you, what if you take those things seriously and see what they produce? Mm. So in fact, 
why were these things kept? Why were Taolud kept? Like, yeah, they're challenges. Like, they're very, very, uh, you know, can you remember this much? How, how deeply can you, you know, <laughs> excavate a, a single move? But ultimately, it's, they were probably kept because they, they had some kind of very, very interesting fruition. And yeah. it's like a, a chonggung, like long work kind yeah. of fruition. And those things don't get bullet pointed very well. Yeah. yeah. And so I mean, this would... Yeah, no, there's so much to pick up there. So you, when you're talking about serious leisure, then mm. you picked up the concept from, from American sociologists. I mean, I, I remember reading um, a book... I think the book was about Deleuze and Derrida, I don't know, and 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 it was the first time I, I read the kind of the etymology of, of of scholarship, the word scholarship, and it comes from it comes from the Greek, I might be making a false connection here, but from what I remember of reading this book 20 years ago, um, scholarship comes from a, the, a Greek word like some like skole from which we get school and it has a sense of leisure, it's that which you do after the day's work is done, and mm -hmm. and after you've finished working, if you're a cultured, civilized person and you have the, the affluence and the means to, to have this disposable time, you better yourself through scholarship. And, you know, it, as we know, when we talk about Greek society, a lot of that involved things like, you know, wrestling and so on, but also, and military skills, but, but also scholarships, like a scholarship is serious leisure time. That's what scholarship is. It, it's, it's a culture that, or a person who has, the extra time to seriously use their leisure time to think philosophical questions or solve scientific riddles or, or uh, you know, or work out how to fight with live blades without killing themselves or killing their, their partner. I mean, these have got to be connected, right? And cu culturally, they have, there has to be some kind of connection between these two realms or more realms. Mm -hmm. And certainly when you describe this, is, this sounds really, uh verboten in uh, in neoliberal realms but like that's really supposed to be i don't know about you but my contract that's supposed to be 40 percent of my job yeah right is research yeah. which is you know if it's scholarship then we can you know gradually abstract it back to serious leisure and that's you know very hard to attain i don't know if anyone's actually doing that i think they're squeezing it in on top of all kinds of other responsibilities but the the that was an interesting thing to hearken to your your editorial about the pandemic and what it made you feel um i in a way like this sounds paradoxical but the the six weeks of peace where i could sit there and write Mm. was blessed you know and I didn't you know I didn't take a sabbatical I didn't schedule anything like it was just oh mm. everything's gone quiet mm -hmm. and so in fact when I stopped receiving or stopped processing in a lot of not very finally relevant or helpful uh, information I had the space to focus and so this again is this you know like are uh, um, you know like i don't know i broke something at some point in my body so my shoulders always going to be a little off and like i could just be neurotic about that because i'll never you know i'll never look as good as that picture of wang shang jai so that's not really useful information eventually you know we can create circumstances that allow us 
the space to to really think and this is i suppose like i I was having this with um sorry paul there's a point to all this Uh, i'm teaching the second year francophone uh acting students i'm their movement teacher and i'm teaching them because when we planned this the pandemic was really raging and we didn't know what we'd be allowed to do so i'm teaching them chinese swords so they're wearing masks fencing masks gloves and we've got these polypropylene Jen and uh, and the uh, the preliminary exercises involve you know standing with it and just trying to figure out how to yeah. my hand. you know you try to oh, this, that looks terrible I'm not going to do that <laughs> but you know you're standing in profile and you want to yeah. try and balance it vertically so that you're you're experiencing the least load. Yeah. And that as though that we're full of water and the water is dropping down into the handle. So you're, you know, you're really balancing it. And then you know, they're basic wheels and cuts and so on. And my experience has been that this just naturally produces silence. Okay. That a lot of the, uh, this is something I'm looking for. If any listener ever listens to this, um, there was a South Asian um, cognitive scientist and she had this beautiful acronym for constant mental chatter. It was a constant, ever-present something, something, something. I saw it on the edge.org website, can't find it. But all of that mental chatter falls away when we start to practice these very precise geometric shapes with our swords. Mm. And I was really curious about where it would work on the students and where it wouldn't. And as soon as I asked them to start doing um, limited contact free play drills Mm -hmm. the more nervous ones would comment or chatter or if they had to present a sequence just before it you know these people are acting like they should never do this but they do they get these weird little facial expressions of nervousness and where's that coming from this thing is supposed to produce mental silence which is the most useful thing we could possibly cultivate because it allows you to see where you actually are Mm And so I'm really curious about how the, how is mental silence produced? Mm. And where does it, things that I experience as producing mental silence instantly, like sit down in horse stance, instant mental silence, play a Taiji set, instant mental silence. But then when it, uh, when does it, when it doesn't work, what's going on there? Mm. Do you it, think it will, does it work the same for everyone? Or, or I mean, in your experience, does it, so some students, they don't get it, or is that just because they're, still struggling with some fears and anxieties and worries about handling a weapon or, or someone's looking at them or, I mean, what, what would be the mm. conditions do you think that you would need to be, and would the conditions that need to be satisfied be different for everyone or, or similar for people? What do you think? Um, you know, I, my cognitive neuroscience friend says, you know, there are two kinds of people, lumpers and splitters. Um, I, I, I was definitely in, as a youth, a lumper um i may be you know in old age becoming a splitter uh so my i thought that these were very universal type things mm-hmm. and i just seen so many people have comparable effects and then you know if i look at the parameters a little bit more closely i must say i just don't know mm-hmm. and uh i'm you know it 
the school where I learned chole foot was a a hotbed of activity in Montreal for people who were already artists. Mm-hmm. And I think there was a mutual support uh, thing there where the class was three, three times a week for two hours. And the last half hour of the class, you had to just be on the floor and continuously practice the thing that you were working on, mm-hmm. like where you'd got to. And the teacher would come around and visit with people. And so everyone who did well in that class was a dancer or a musician because they already knew how to practice. Mm. And so, of course, there were other there were other kinds of people there, but especially the morning class, which was from 10 to noon, you had all sorts of people who had art jobs that were at night and they were in there and they were able to practice. And so perhaps a lot of my early experience of seeing like, my goodness, this very, very thorough, formal, physical and mental training has this enormous fruition was because it was like being given to people who already had previous experience in the way they were like, I was saying, you know, the Shenji Ying were already tough. The artists already know how to practice. So if you say here, here's great practice structure, artists are gonna really heat it up. So to answer your question, I just don't know. I don't know anymore. And I feel like I, you know, I, but it's, about teaching i don't know anything about teaching i'm I'm like (laughs) it's interesting because and i I want to um there's a conversation that you and i have been having on and off over email and over whatsapp and things for a little while and it's what you're saying about what i'm what i'm hearing is that there's something intangibly but inherently rewarding in practice in that in knowing how to practice in and in that discipline so the people who can practice will at the the, the, the last half hour of your Charlie foot class the people who who whose life is already structured through discipline and effort in that in a disciplinary way can find a kind of intensity and a kind of possible mental stillness possibly i mean we're projecting we're guessing but that maybe people who haven't had a as disciplined a life um so such people can't experience it and this reminds me of what we're talking about because i've been reading as you know peter Sloterdijk, and i don't want to put you on the spot because i know you've read some a long time ago you maybe haven't had the time to turn to it again but this it it really resounds like people misread Sloterdijk, right people think Sloterdijk is really complicated but i think that if you have been involved in a kind of something that borders on esoteric or ascetic, like something a bit intense that's meditative or Tai Chi-ish or, or, or maybe solo sword forms or Taolu. I think he's talking about that. I think that what, what Sloterdijk tries to do in his rambling conversations with the history of Western philosophy and his interest in India is talk about the kind of things that you're talking about now, which is this Um, not even a mystical experience it's not even an esoteric experience it's a kind of psychological state that is produced through um, he talks about gymnastics and acrobatics but just a kind of intensity that and I think a lot of people who've written about martial arts in different ways have tried to get at this I think this is a lot of the effort of people who are writing about these experiences I mean as someone who works in theatre and performance, you probably are aware of a vast literature that I'm not, of people who are talking about these different states produced through 
discipline, produced through effort, produced through practice, possibly with a live blade and therefore threat of injury or death. Um, really intensifying the situation. But I mean, what do you think? I don't, you don't have to go after the slot dike if you haven't been reading any as intensely as I have, but um, <laughs> about this, this, this shared kind of understanding or insight that people who live an intense disciplinary life, whether that be two hour class three times a week, or whether that be a musician's life, or, a, or an actor's life, or a martial arts life, or a tightrope walker's life, I mean, am I, or a juggler's life, I don't know. Hmm. Um, I think I've read one and a half uh, <laughs> Peter Sloterdijk books. There's You Must Change Your Life. Is that the? Yeah. Yeah. And then there's the one you just recommended to me because of its uh, little quote about religion. And uh, I'm called to mind, again, this is a bit mean, but um, the very famous scholar of studies, Christopher Skipper, who was uh, Dutch, but worked in France and then went back to Holland and then actually was living in Fuzhou, I think, in, uh, in, in Fujian province in China. Um, he just died, but some clever person has a whole pile of his lectures on YouTube and he's discussing the, our misconceptions of Chinese religion and how what we're not seeing uh, in terms of this cosmology of Tao and Yin Yang and how they're in the culture everywhere and there is no border to that. So many, many things can be included in that. Anyway, he's giving us wonderful praise. And so I thought of your, uh, the piece the you'd sent to me where he's essentially describing that we don't have appropriate words for the embrace of these practices because the practices have kind of diminished in cultural relevance and perhaps they were always a little bit marginal. And so the language around it would fall into religiosity. And this is kind of referring to something a little bit different and needs to be, you always need to unpack it. So you're speaking to a smaller and smaller audience. The other thing it makes me think of is I, I keep this, I heard this is what tech people do. I have no idea if it's true. Um, you keep a single, Word file on your computer in that single word file, so you can say that again. Sorry, so could you could you just all ideas go say that last bit again? You a single yeah. word file. You keep a single word file of what? A single word processing file, like Microsoft Word file, open on the desktop, and then every idea I have, I put in there ah, okay, for years, right. so I can search it. Yeah. And um, there's probably better ways of doing this, right? But this is an extremely uh, simple thing. And I went through mine and like, it's like yeah, 14 years old. So I, I went through this document and I made a sort. So what I'm collecting are like training methods, like exercises in a variety of areas, um, kind of principles, like, you know, you know, use efficiency, don't use brute strength. There's a, yeah, 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 yeah. just some kind of guiding thing that isn't an exercise. Yeah. Um, cosmologies, like we can imagine that there are five phases and that things have positive and negative qualities or these kind of older religious views that, that aren't about uh, devotion to deities, but are about, you know, how, how nature is structured. So yeah. cosmologies. And then finally, like something somebody told me about someone. So anecdotes. Or things that happened to me, like the time the 
extraordinary Willem Dutour is like brushed my belly like that hard and you know did that dimock kind of thing and I was like doubled over in agony came over and rubbed my back and went away and like I've never met anyone else who could do anything remotely like that and he's like you know he's a bit smug he's like you have to know where the blood is I'm like yeah dude I guess you do um but uh you know there's so there's like anecdotes of you know the martial arts teaching tales that's a particularly succulent one but like there are so I, I just got these four categories and so like everything I've been putting in this file for years and years and years is you know methods principles cosmologies and anecdotes and that is something where Slaughter Dyke's comments, like what's practice? How do we recall practice? Where do we put practice? Yeah. I feel like, well, I've managed to divide it into these four things. <laughs> and so I feel like when, when I, yeah, right. Like when he's, I read him, I'm like, oh, that's my, <laughs> that's my word file that he's talking about in many ways. Or how do I share that? If I shared that with you, you'd be like, great, Dan, you sent me gibberish. Uh, but if I, <laughs> you know, if I wanted to share that with someone, what's the process yeah what's the, the the thing that would make it all snap into into focus for someone make it make it communicable i mean this is this is what we've been talking about for almost an hour now and and this is my way of signaling that i tend to try and keep these um these episodes these podcast episodes to within an hour so i think we might be okay. out of order but it's about i mean the the, the shared kind of problem of 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 communicating You've, you've been talking about this in different ways, the shared problem of communicating. So you hate the bullet point, like what are the learning objectives of this module? Ah, and people hate that, don't they? But also, but there is a real, there is a real question of like, what might you actually learn if mm. you devote your life to Taolu or if you do, or if you devote it to cultural studies or if you like, what might you actually learn? And the problem with the world is that we translate it into these utilitarian functional kind of fungible neoliberal values. But actually it still is a question like, what seed am I planting here? What is going to grow if I, if I devote myself to tai chi or should i do krav maga or should i meditate or should i or should i just be a, a hill walker i mean what like what will i learn <laughs> we need to, and and the fact that we can't know what we will learn and we can't communicate that often because we, you take you go to a different level of I'm thinking of that film now, was it called something like She, where the guy falls in love with his computer, essentially, a computer program. Mm -hmm. And then and then his computer is like an artificial intelligence computer. And she eventually falls in love with another computer. So she ditches him because she because he couldn't possibly communicate on the level that they're communicating. And it's like when, you know, Ben Spatz writes about the kind of fractal process of, of a field where if I go that way or that way, I will be unintelligible to myself, like th these these two options. I mean, we're, we're talking about all of this, aren't we, I think? Or this is what I'm possibly projecting onto our conversation. What do you think? No, I, I think that's... Uh, you said so many great things. Uh, <laughs> um, I'm, I'm, you know, agreeing with you in the most nebulous fashion possible. There was something that really caught my attention. Um, If one know this is a experience that I have and share with students an awful lot, where we are, you know, sort of critical thinking writ large has been subsumed to a kind of 
justification thinking where you know if you get this grant we'll be giving you money so you better be doing something responsible with it so uh you have to be able to justify artistic choices and of course that's impossible because i don't need if i knew what the justification for making an artistic choice was in the first place i wouldn't need to make the art mm. so if you are proceeding in a oh i know what this is going to be uh kind of attitude it's you know maybe that's okay somewhere else but it certainly isn't okay in any kind of creative process where in fact you know is your process in search of a meaning what is this going to produce and so the the confusion that, that you evoke is you know should i be a hill walker or should i be doing the ido or you know like this again how do we uh, engage with things with the idea that they're open-ended and they will inform us in ways we can't imagine mm -hmm. at the same time how do we avoid like branding and commerce mm -hmm. uh, as a which you know commerce is fine as itself but as a, a source of neurotic uh compulsion mm. you know like oh, i've got to do ninjutsu and i've got to do uh, hill walking and tea ceremony and ceramics and it's just uh, what you know uh, so this vasty amount of options uh, which can drown us and make us want to have things just like there's so many options we want the options to justify themselves and then there's what i think is a more productive attitude as you know as an artist is well, i don't know what this is going to do therefore i'm going to follow a process that will in you know enlighten me about it at the same time that process could lead me really far away and as you know ben evokes like if you wind up over there you will not yeah. be over there you've left the building you've you've really left the building if you and it's it, life is like this it, it, i mean that you've just touched on so many so many philosophical pedagogical lifestyle <laughs> paradoxes and problems that um we're going to have to just leave it there we're going to have to leave it there and pick it up again and you're you're going to be the most the most conversed with um discussant and uh, interviewee on on the podcast so uh, but i am gonna i'm gonna call it i'm gonna call time on it there because i think that is about an hour yeah. that's you know that's that's any that's the length of anyone's commute to work isn't it i mean an hour is is there and back for most people so let's let's really hope so <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> daniel mraz um thank you ever so much for taking the time to talk to me again today and i know we, we will talk again on this podcast and on whatsapp and on facebook and just as often as possible because it's always a delight <laughs> thank you daniel <laughs> thanks very much paul see you next time